one of my goals is to better understand uh, data centers in the broader social world that they play. Second is thinking about the electronic supply chain, because it, it does seem to me that not only at the chip level, but also at the electronics assembly level where chips are glued into an iPhone or whatever, um, we're beginning to see a fair amount of change there as well with countries like India, Vietnam trying to play much bigger roles. And so I think understanding the ways that the electronics supply chain is changing is sort of the second half of the story. You look at the chips at the top of the supply chain, but also the assembly is lower value add, but also quite important in its own way. And so tracking those changes and trying to understand where they're happening and how rapidly change is happening, I think is also a, a really critical part of the story. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting edge technology, startup unicorns and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from the Asianometry YouTube channel. I'm your guest host today, and I'm here today with Chris Miller. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Great, great. You were recently in Taiwan a few weeks ago, right? That's right. Yeah, I was visiting for the publication of the Taiwanese translation of Chip War. And uh, how was that? Did you enjoy your time in Taiwan? It was a fun visit and it was capped off by a really fascinating public discussion with Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, which was a really unique experience. One of the most exciting parts of the book launch for me over the past uh, half year. What was your take from meeting Morris? Like, What was he like? Well, we've spoken before, but only uh, via video conference because it was during the pandemic. So this is our first chance to meet in person. And of course, he's someone who's been in the industry since literally its creation. And so it is kind of extraordinary to talk to someone who knows basically every aspect of the history that I was writing about, daunting in some ways, because he had personal connections to people who were in the industry half a century ago, but really impressive to have a chance to meet him and talk about how the industry has developed. How did you get started with this book? Like what gave you the idea to start working on it? Well, I initially planned to write a very different book. I'm a Russianist by background. My previous work has been on Russian economic history. And I started planning to write a book on the evolution of defense technology during the Cold War. And the puzzle that motivated me was, why was it that during the early Cold War, both superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, could produce the key military technologies of that era, atomic weapons, long-range missile systems. But by the end of the Cold War, there had been a big gap that had opened up in terms of military technology with the U.S. and its allies jumping ahead and the Soviet Union falling behind. And that seemed to me like a puzzle because both sides were committed to the arms race. Both sides poured tons of money into the arms race. Both sides realized that technology was important to staying ahead. And the Soviet Union, by all accounts, had lots of engineers, very smart physicists, Nobel Prize winning physicists, and many other types of scientists. And all of the ingredients for success in the Soviet Union sort of seemed to be there. Smart engineers, lots of capital investment, but the results were very unimpressive in the most important sphere for the Soviet state, which was its defense technology. And so that to me seemed like a really interesting puzzle to understand the evolution of technology and how it interacts with different political, social, economic systems. And so that's where I started. And I came to realize over the course of that the really interesting shifts in defense technology weren't about any individual airplane or missile system but rather the computing that was increasingly being deployed across military systems, not only computing, but also sensing and then the creation of all that data that needed to be understood and processed. And that helped me realize that actually, you know, it wasn't only militaries that have been transformed by computing power. It was actually everything because basically every facet of the economy has had vast amounts of computing deployed to it over the last half century or so. And key to that deployment is semiconductors, which make it possible to miniaturize computing power and it made it possible to deploy computing everywhere. And so that, that's actually how I ended up writing a book about semiconductors, because I realized that although I sort of knew what chips were when I started, I 
hadn't really comprehended just how fundamental they were to every aspect of modern life. How's been sort of the response to the book so far? Like how's people's reactions to the things you discovered in it? I think it depends on, on who you ask. I mean, people in the industry, in the chip industry said, at last, someone understands how important we are <laughs> because they'd understood that their devices were in everything and that no one else really knew what a semiconductor was. But And I think for a typical reader, and, and I was a typical person who only had a dim knowledge of the industry when I started the research, that I reads the book and says, wow, I had no idea that I interact with thousands of semiconductors every single day, even though I don't see them because they're buried deep in devices. One of the key arguments of the book is that modern civilization simply can't function without lots and lots of silicon chips and that we don't take them seriously enough. And I think uncovering the role that chips play in every facet of modern life is one of the key takeaways of the book. Now, did you get like a different reaction from the readers in Asia as opposed to the readers in the United States? Because my thinking was that in Asia, there's a lot more presence of these electronics in people's lives because a lot of them work in the industry. Did you sense that? Yeah, it depends a lot on which country you're talking about. So I think in Taiwan and in Korea, where both countries' economies are very heavily focused on semiconductors, those were two countries where there was just already an appreciation of the central role of semiconductors. And in Southeast Asia, in Japan, in China, I think there are certainly some people who are in the industry or in electronics at large. But even there, I think the typical reader is not nearly as clued into the importance of semiconductors as you get in Taiwan and Korea. And then similarly in Europe, I think most European readers are surprised, like most other readers, that there are some European companies producing machines without which advanced semiconductors simply can't be made. Most Europeans are surprised to know that's happening in Europe. Did you have any takeaways that you wanted people to have from reading the book? Like any particular ones you wanted in mind? I think there were a couple of key themes that stood out to me. One was just how important Moore's Law is. And many people know Moore's Law is the doubling of computing power every couple of years. But just to think through what that means in practice, that for now well over half a century, the chip industry has provided a doubling every single year, which is something that no other industry in all of human history has ever achieved. The analogy I like to use is, imagine if airplanes flew twice as fast every two years, or cars' cost fell by half every two years. <laughs> Exponentials like that are simply inconceivable. The rest of the economy is happy with 2% productivity growth a year. That's a success. And the chip industry gets doubling every two years. And so just making sense of how transformative that was the first. The second is the internationalization of supply chains. Because I think most people, before they pick up the book, sort of are aware that supply chains stretch across different countries and continents. But the chip industry has, I think, it's hard to put a number on this, but I think the most complex supply chain of any industry that exists. And the fact that there's not a single country in the world that has all the capabilities needed to make it complex an advanced semiconductor domestically produced, I think is something that a lot of people are surprised by, that you actually need cooperation from firms in Japan and the Netherlands and the US and Taiwan, et cetera. That really hits home for most people, you know, what a supply chain is and, and why they matter and why they are so complex and in some ways so fragile because we need the coordination of lots of different firms and lots of different countries to make this work. I mean, in some ways, it's a miracle that it does work. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. I think there was one piece of information that I dug up when I was doing some research on like military semiconductors that one component of like something like 12 to 20 different countries before coming to the United States. It was, it was pretty fascinating. The supply chains go very deep. 
Yeah, and, and that's not unique to military components. That's true for civilian components as well. Did you have any kind of like anecdotes in your research that you weren't able to include? Like did anything yet to be left on like the cutting room floor? <laughs> well, I, I had lots of uh, material from all sorts of different interviews that I did that I couldn't include. I think the big thing that I left out, if I had more space, I, I would have included more of it is on the history of the European chip industry, which I give somewhat short shrift to in part because the chip manufacturing industry in Europe plays a smaller role today than it did in the past. But there were, of course, a lot lots of very important European chip firms, and also, no less importantly, lots of Europeans who played a critical role in the early decades of Silicon Valley, better than the microprocessor, for example. There's a lot of interesting European aspects of the story that I was only able to include a small fraction of them. The European semiconductor industry is really fascinating, especially the way they interact with policy and trying to, in some ways, keep up with Japan and America and all that, but also coming up with really interesting things of their own. Are they going to make a movie? Will there be a movie for Chipor? <laughs> no plans for a movie yet, but uh, if you know a producer, send them my way. <laughs> I kind of want to talk a little bit about, because you mentioned that you worked in your training is in kind of Russian history and Soviet history. One of the biggest things that I was really fascinated with at the channel was kind of the Soviet-American computer gap, which I think you touched upon a little bit as well. Why do you think the Soviet-American computer gap opened up so quickly in history? Like, What do you think was kind of like the driving factors of that? It's a complex question that requires, I think, a multifaceted answer. I think part of the answer is that the Soviet economy was never as big as the U.S. economy. So it peaked at around slightly less than half the size of the U.S. economy measured by GDP. So it was always smaller. So you'd expect a smaller economy to have you know, all things equal, less computing capability. So that's one. But that alone is not enough because the Soviets didn't have half the computing capabilities of the U.S. They had far, far less. And so the second facet is that the Soviets did some trade in computers, but they traded with small economies. They traded with Bulgaria, they traded with Hungary, they traded with East Germany, whereas the U.S. traded with big economies like all the economies of Western Europe, like Japan, and then later on the, the emerging economies of East and Southeast Asia in the late Cold War. And so the kind of share of global GDP that U.S. tech firms were selling to was substantially larger than the share of global GDP that Soviet firms were trading with. So it, it actually wasn't a, the U.S. had twice the economy than the Soviet Union. It was actually that the U.S. was selling to three times the GDP that Soviet firms were selling to, to use ballpark figures. But even that doesn't explain the difference because the computer gap was larger than 3x. And there you have to turn to some of the things that made Silicon Valley different from the Soviet chip industry and computer industry. And the first of those factors is the consumer market. The key error that the Soviets made is that they didn't really develop consumer market. There was a small consumer market for computers uh, late in the day. But if you look at Fairchild, Semiconductor, Texas Instruments, from the earliest days, they were looking to sell to the military, but they were trying to find their first possible opportunity to attack towards consumer markets, which they realized would be far, far larger. And that didn't really exist in the Soviet Union. And so the number of units sold in the US or in the West writ large was order of magnitude higher than in the Soviet Union, because no matter how many computers the Soviet military bought, there were just larger consumer markets. And then finally, I think the innovation process in the U.S. was more efficient than in the Soviet Union for a variety of reasons. I think the state planning in the Soviet Union wasn't that efficient. I think the kind of catch-up mentality that Soviet computer industries focused on of trying to replicate the latest in the U.S. and then bring it to the Soviet Union meant that they were, on the one hand, able to cut some corners in R&D because they didn't need to do all the R&D in-house, but it also meant that their technologies were less well-suited to their domestic needs. And so the, the end result was less effective. And so when you put all these different factors together, R&D was less effective. The overall
retail market was a lot smaller because it didn't have consumer markets. And then the economy in aggregate was smaller. The computer gap was large and it grew and grew and grew over time. It was large in 1960, but it was larger in 1970 and far, far, far larger at the end of the Cold War. And the fact that it kept growing was a huge problem for the Soviet Union because it meant that in the key technology of the late 20th, early 21st centuries, the Soviets simply couldn't compete. Why do you think that the Soviets eventually did a thing where they copied the IBM computers outright, right? I don't know when they did this, but like, why didn't that work? Like, why weren't they able to kind of get the same benefits or catch up from just copying the computers outright as one might expect? So I think copying did work in the sense that it would give you roughly comparable computers. And so if your goal was to have a roughly comparable computer to the U.S. in a small number of unit volumes, you would get that. And so copying took a bit of time. So if a computer was deployed in the U.S. in 1976, it'd be copied in 1978 in the Soviet Union. But then you have the question of scaling up, acquiring relevant software, of scaling up at quality so it wouldn't break down soon enough. And all those were extraordinarily hard things to do. And in computing, it's hard to make advances at the cutting edge, but part of the story is not necessarily the cutting edge, but also the scale of producing a million units. And that was something that was really critical early on to the U.S. industry. It's how do you manage to scale an industry from small batch production runs to something that's mass market? The Soviets never got that. And that's something you can't copy. You can't copy knowledge about how to scale an industry. You can learn it over time. You can try to replicate it, but it's not like you can grab one prototype and then learn how to mass produce it from that prototype. One of the big policy debates in technology in the 1980s was whether or not these technology export bans or these kind of like trying to prevent a certain technologies in the West coming to the Soviets were effective or not effective? Like, What was your take on that? I think a lot depends on which technologies you're looking at. Certain technologies are easier to copy than others. Certain technologies change more rapidly. And the more rapidly they change, the harder it is to copy because you've got constant flux in the system. More complex systems are harder to sustainably copy if you also need to copy the spare parts or acquire the spare parts somehow. So I think we should be really skeptical of kind of making any sort of broad statement about is technology easy to copy or not, because it depends hugely on the types of systems we're talking about. For computing technologies in the Cold War, you know, it's abundantly clear that Soviets could copy individual systems. But I think it's also pretty clear that the fact that they weren't able to buy large numbers injected a whole lot of difficulty, uncertainty, supply chain issues into their computing process. And I think one of the most interesting sources I read from the Soviet Union, I wasn't able to interview the person, I think they're probably not alive anymore, was a weapons designer from the 1970s asked about guidance computers and missile systems. And I was operating on the assumption that the moment you'd get a new computing technology, you'd want to put it in your missile system to get better guidance. In the 1970s, guidance was hard. Today's easy. Everyone has GPS, then it was hard. And this uh, designer said, well, actually, we didn't really trust our computing technologies to work really well. The supply chains were really messy. And so, yeah, we had these advanced computers, but actually we preferred to design our systems down so that they didn't rely on the most advanced systems because we just didn't think they'd work. It was too difficult. And I think that is a really interesting data point because it suggests that the, the uncertainty, the friction that export controls put in the Soviet supply chain actually incentivized weapons designers to design less sophisticated weapons that relied less on the types of systems that might need to be using controlled imported components. And so can I prove that that happened everywhere in the Soviet defense complex? No. Um, but, but I think that was an interesting anecdote that was suggestive of the downstream effects that controls that introduced this friction had. Let's go back to the present time and go back to America. 
So Morris Dung talked a little bit about the differences in work culture between Asia and the United States. Something that I've kind of had more of an appreciation while learning about this industry is just how it's not exactly conducive for work-life balance, right? So do you think it's possible for like, you know, us to achieve the ultimate leading edge in semiconductor manufacturing in the United States and also have a life at the same time? You know, I think the answer is, I'm not sure, but I think we should be skeptical of the thesis that there are certain national cultures that are more perfectly attuned to semiconductor manufacturing, given that the cutting edge in semiconductor manufacturing has historically been in a number of countries with very different cultures. So in the US, there was cutting edge production at first in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And then again, in the 2000s and 2010s, Japan was by most accounts, the cutting edge producer of you know late 70s to early 90s. European firms were at the cutting edge throughout much of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Taiwan and to some extent Korea are at the cutting edge today. And so the fact that the cutting edge has moved around in different ways makes me think it's about corporate culture not about national culture. And the fact that it's moved, take the US, the US was the first country to produce uh, cutting edge chips or chips at all. Then Japan in the 1980s took over and then it moved back to the US after that. You know, that to me is not a national culture thing, that's a corporate culture thing. And I think there are a lot of similarities that stood out to me in, for example, Intel CEO Andy Grove's management style, a tenacious focus on perfection in manufacturing. And what I heard a lot of Morris Chang's colleagues from earlier in his career talk about as well. It's a relentless focus on eliminating errors. And with that came a, a lot of hours, I think, put in the job. But I think that I would attribute that more to the culture of a small number of companies rather than the culture of a country. I was also struck just to give you another anecdote. In China, obviously, the, the tech sector has the 996 working culture, which is a matter of much discussion, debate. I was struck in a number of interviews with TSMC employees and some former TSMC employees when I was doing the book. I asked about, would China ever be able to replicate what TSMC does? And they said, well, you know, the Chinese didn't really work that hard. <laughs> Taiwanese work harder. Um, and I said, well, wait a minute, what about 996? I think we should be hesitant about national level cultural explanations when I think actually corporate cultures are probably what's really decisive. Do you think Americans, young Americans want to work in semiconductor manufacturing? Like what are some of the issues with relating to getting more people to get interested in semiconductors as opposed to software engineering, for instance? Um, I think certainly in the U.S., there's been more of an association between tech and software the past couple of decades than in the past. And it's Silicon Valley, of course, was founded around the silicon. Um, but today, when most Americans think of tech, they think of search engines or social media or AI startups. And fewer of them think about the manufacturing of chips that all of these technologies require. Will that change? You know, I think it depends on a number of factors. One obvious factor is relative wages and software jobs versus semiconductor jobs. Software firms in Silicon Valley have paid very well the past couple of decades and they've sucked insanely well, yet crazy well. And so that's had an impact on the semiconductor workforce as well, because if you're a smart uh, engineering graduate, you know, you've got a great job offer at Google uh, right after college. And if you're deciding what to major in, uh, computer science looks like a really smart choice. I think next to that, there's been, I think, just a broad sense in society that manufacturing is low tech. Whereas, you know, when I look at manufacturing, I look at a, a segment of the economy that has just provided extraordinary productivity improvements over the past two centuries and chip making is the, the pinnacle of manufacturing. So I do hope that my book contributes to helping audiences in the US and, and some other countries realize just how cutting edge technology this type of high-end manufacturing is. But I think you're right to say that the pull of software jobs has been harder to get 
enough people into the semiconductor workforce in the US? Yeah, it is kind of a big question. I posted a video about it. And I think the number one comment is like, just pay a lot more money. And I think it's reductive, I think, piece of reasoning, which I don't think is the right way to kind of approach the notion. Well, I think it, it cuts in the other direction too, though, because you know one of the arguments that Taiwanese firms will make is that it's you know cheaper to produce in Taiwan, partly because of labor costs. And so I think part of the argument, I think, is actually, well, maybe it's wages in Taiwan that ought to be higher. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't seem to me that that's necessarily something that countries should be proud of competing on, on labor costs. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of like these new policies now coming out of the United States, coming out of Europe, that look to build these facilities within their national borders and a specific part of the facility. What are your thoughts about those and their effectiveness going forward? I think we have got to be very careful about how to describe the goals of what we're trying to accomplish. I think it's easy to find political leaders in the U.S. and Europe and other countries as well that want to have more domestic production for the sake of domestic production because they want photo ops next to big factories because they want a factory in their district for the wrong reasons. Uh, and we've got to be very sensitive to that. That is not a, a positive trend. At the same time, I think if you look at the way that China has been pouring subsidies into its own ship industry and gaining market share and fabrication um, fairly steadily over the past decade, I think it's inevitable that other countries would react and say, you know, we're nervous about where this is headed. And if you were to map chronologically when different countries entered the subsidy race, you know, it's pretty clear that China was first in 2014 in the current phase of the subsidy race. According to the OECD studies that have been done, China is still the winner uh, in terms of who's spending more each year. So we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that US, Europe, Japan, India, others are are jumping in the race on their own. Would it have been optimal to have a level playing field globally that said, here's what's acceptable and here's what's not? You know, I think from a simple free trade perspective, the answer is yes, but that was never on the table. And so I think given the the distortions that already existed, a number of governments, including the, the US, have decided that the only real response is to join the uh, subsidy race. What do you think the notion that like many of these examples, like these fabrication facilities, don't necessarily have the rest of the ecosystem coming along with them. For instance, like the packaging or the supplier side, the component side or the equipment side, right? So a lot of these are being built kind of in the middle of almost figuratively they're on an island, right? You would do the chips and you might ship the chips off to China or something to do the packaging. Do you think there should be subsidized for those as well? In the US, there definitely will be subsidies offered for those. Or at least you can apply for subsidies if you're in the, in the material space or in the packaging space. In Europe, I think we'll have to wait and see exactly where they go, although the outlines are becoming clear. You know, I think there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem if you're trying to build out your industry. Do you build the ecosystem? Do you build the, the fabrication? I don't know what the right answer is to that question, but it seems like one can't just assume that either one will pop up without the other. But I think also when it comes to the ecosystem, I think we're in a state of flux uh, around the, the packaging side in particular. With the shift to more capital intensive, more R&D intensive packaging, as we talk about advanced packaging or heterogeneous integration, my hypothesis would be that over the next 10 years, packaging will get more and more capital intensive. And so the existing structure of packaging, which is heavily focused on China, Southeast Asia as well, becomes less economically important to have in those countries because labor costs become less important for packaging. And so I think we shouldn't assume a sort of stable distribution of packaging geographically because separate from all the political incentive factors, I think the, the reality is that the cost structure of the industry is in the process of changing and labor costs are starting to matter uh, less when it comes to packaging. How do you think like these policies will affect Taiwan's semiconductor industry? Like what do you expect to see happen more on their side? 
Well, when I was in Taiwan last month, everyone was asking me about whether this would create the quote-unquote hollowing out of the Taiwanese ship industry. I was sort of shocked by the number of people who asked me that question because it seems to me really detached from reality. I just look at TSMC's stated production plans for Arizona and Japan and production in Taiwan, and it's by any projection over the next decade, there will be a lot more production in Taiwan than there will be in any other location. And so I just don't see the evidentiary basis for predictions of hollowing out really much at all. But it seems to me that anyone who actually looks at the numbers concludes that Taiwan is going to remain a very, very important player in the world ship industry for the next, you know, at least five or 10 years. And who knows beyond that. But I think the actually interesting question is, will the Taiwanese ship industry become more globalized as a result of this? Because in some ways, I think Taiwanese ship firms sell already to a global market, but I think they're going to end up with a more globalized workforce certainly with a, a bit more diversified production footprint, probably with better connections with R&D institutions in other countries as well. And so it seems to me actually that this is a, seen by some people in Taiwan as a threatening development, but actually could just as easily be conceptualized as an opportunity to embrace a new set of connections with Japan, with the US, with Europe, with India, very interestingly, I think, in kind of creating the next generation of the tech ecosystem. And so to me, the political debate in Taiwan seems to me unduly focused on negative scenarios that are highly unlikely and insufficiently focused on actually what opportunities are standing right in front of the country. So the lessons from Taiwan's kind of work in trying to build up their semiconductor industry, what lessons do you think hold for industry policymakers in other technologies, kind of like trying to commercialize or scale up their capacities there too? Well, I'm hesitant to draw lessons from semiconductors and apply them to other spheres like batteries, EVs, or anything, because I think the specifics of the technology matter so much. But I think from the Taiwanese experience, a couple things stand out. I think one is that inevitably, because Taiwan had a small domestic market, because it's a, a small or medium-sized economy, Taiwanese firms focused from day one on exports. And that was important because export markets provided the market discipline that determined whether firms would succeed or fail. And so there wasn't much risk of the government getting too involved because ultimately, no matter what the government did, firms would only succeed if they found customers abroad. And so they had to compete internationally to succeed. So that's one thing that I think is an important lesson. And for bigger countries, there's a often a desire to sell to protected domestic markets. Taiwan didn't have that choice. And in hindsight, it was a very lucky thing that Taiwan didn't because Taiwan's ship firms proved so adept at exporting. I guess second thing is that companies like TSMC did an extraordinary job at doing one thing very well, and then were very, very adept at outsourcing everything else. Didn't produce any machine tools on their own, didn't produce any software design tools on their own. Most of the packaging downstream not all of it, but a lot of it was outsourced, or almost all the chemicals production was outsourced. And so TSMC was very, very skilled at plugging itself into an already internationalized supply chain. And I think that's important to note at a time when political leaders all around the world are saying, let's produce everything at home, or let's produce more at home. The success story of TSMC was as much about the ability to integrate lots of different component parts, tools, software, materials, etc., from around the world, and then do very good manufacturing in Taiwan. But it wasn't a story of everything made in Taiwan. It was a story of one part of the production process made in Taiwan and doing a very, very good job of sourcing the best components from elsewhere on the world. And I think that's also a really important lesson for how to compete in an industry like the chip industry with already very complex and internationalized supply chains. You can't do it all yourself. One last question. What do you think of the notion about like certain demand markets in the United States not being present, for instance? Like one of the big things I was really interested in is we used to make computers in the United States. And that was one of the reasons why semiconductor industries like Intel and whatnot gained a lot of proficiency because they supplied the computers. 
now we don't really necessarily make so many computers in the United States anymore. And future demand markets like EVs and mostly thinking EVs are not being made right now in the United States, mostly being made in China. Do you think that's going to have any issues with future policies of semiconductor production? So I don't think that it necessarily should because chips are easy to trade. They're high value, low volume, so they're the perfect tradable good. And already it's the case that most chip making doesn't happen in the country where the chips are assembled into a final device. So South Korean firms produce most of the world's DRAM, but they're not assembling that into servers or PCs in South Korea. It's assembled in China or wherever. Taiwan is maybe the exception to the rule. Although even then, most of the chips that Taiwan produces are not assembled into goods in Taiwan. They're assembled into goods in China and Southeast Asia and elsewhere, often done by Taiwanese contract manufacturers. But nevertheless, it's still not in Taiwan. So I think the way the electronics industry has developed, everyone's gotten very comfortable with sourcing components from around the world. And look at a smartphone. Your smartphone is probably assembled in China. 90% of them are. But almost all the high-value chips aren't produced in China. Most of the displays was changing. Many of the displays aren't produced in China. And so we're used to having a really disaggregated electronics industry where it doesn't matter so much which country a given component is from. And so I, I don't think that the location in the market per se will be uh, either a factor that benefits or hinders chip development in any given country. Okay. The real last question. Uh, are you working on a new book? Like, what are you working on next? I hope to maybe later this year carve out some time from new research. But now I'm still focused on trying to understand the current state of the chip industry. I think two things stand out. One is thinking more about the role of the hardware that trains AI systems. And everyone's talking about ChatGPT. But to me, no less interesting is the data centers where AIs are trained and then the chips inside of those data centers. And I've done a fair amount of work on chips like NVIDIA GPUs as part of the book. It seems like data centers are a sphere that most people barely think about, but are increasingly playing a central role in economy and society. And so one of my goals is to better understand uh, data centers in the broader social role that they play. Second is thinking about the electronic supply chain, because it does seem to me that not only at the chip level, but also at the electronics assembly level where chips are glued into an iPhone or whatever. Um, we're beginning to see a fair amount of change there as well with countries like India, Vietnam trying to play much bigger roles. And so I think understanding the ways that the electronics supply chain is changing is sort of the second half of the story. You look at the chips at the top of the supply chain, but also the assembly is lower value add, but also quite important in its own way. And so tracking those changes and trying to understand where they're happening and how rapidly change is happening, I think is also a really critical part of the story. Great, great. Professor Miller, thank you so much for coming on to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.